and welcome to Women at Warp, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name is Sue, and thanks for tuning in. Today with me, we have Jara. Hello. And it is just the two of us today because we have two very special guests who are going to be joining us by phone in just a little bit. We are going to be talking to Deborah Langsam, who you might remember as the publisher of Spockanalia, as well as some other original Star Trek fanzines. And she was also a well committee member and involved in some of the first Star Trek conventions. And we're also joined by Lynn Cohen Kohler, who helped to organize the first Star Trek convention in Philadelphia in 1975, and uh, is also one of the organizers and involved in Lunacon and a member of the Lunarians. It's super exciting. So yeah, I mean, this episode may sound a little bit different to regular listeners because we did this over the phone, um, but hopefully you enjoy. And uh, it was just such a cool opportunity getting to talk to these two women who were involved in the earliest Star Trek conventions, um, as well as fanzines, and uh, talk about sort of how conventions worked in the 70s and how they've changed since then. But as usual, we have a little bit of housekeeping to do first. As you know, our show is entirely supported by our patrons on Patreon. If you would like to become a patron, you can do so for as little as a dollar per month. <laughs> you can do so for as little as $1 per month and get awesome rewards from thanks on social media to joining us for watch-along commentaries and lots of other stuff, anything that we find that we throw up there. We were talking about at one point throwing up some very early pictures of us at Star Trek conventions. Mm. Maybe I'll go looking for some of those. But (laughs) if you're interested in joining us on Patreon, you can find that at patreon.com slash women at warp. Another way you can support our show is by leaving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps people find us and learn more about us, and we really appreciate it. So if you get a second, if you can go uh, look at your podcast feed and submit a review, that would be super appreciated. And our last bit of housekeeping is our giveaway. We are having a giveaway for two of the 50th anniversary Her Universe uh, infinity scarves and there is a way to enter and photos of the scarves in our show notes so we won't spend a whole lot of time going into detail and the entry period for that giveaway closes on at noon eastern on november 12th so there should be about a week left when this episode goes live and that is it so we're going to get right into our discussion with lynn and devra so joining us today are Deborah Langsam and Lynn Kohler, and we're so excited to have you both here. We're going to start by asking you to uh, just introduce yourselves, talk about your history with Star Trek, why you love it, whatever you would love to uh, share with the audience would be great. So why don't we start with Lynn? Hi, uh, my name is Lynn. Um, when I was involved in the early Trek days, I was Lynn Cohen. And I got married, became Lynn Kohler, so I'm known by both names. Um, I live in New York now, but I'm originally from Philadelphia, and I helped start the first Star Trek convention in Philadelphia, which was in 1975, I think. Um, And I also attended the second Star Trek convention in New York as a child. I was still a child then. (laughs) Um, This is Deborah Langsam. And I started 
the first Star Trek fan fiction magazine, Smokinalia. I did five issues of that. Then I did 18 issues of Massiform D. And I also did, um, when I say did, I mean published. I wrote a few stories, but most of it was other people's stories. I also published several full-length novels, such as One Way Mirror and No Peaceful Roads Lead Home. And I was one of the uh, people who started the first Star Trek convention in New York City, which I think was 1970, but I'll be damned if I can remember. Um, and we did 72. It for, 72. We did it for five years, and then we said enough. And it was an enormous amount of work, and it was great fun. And I was um, not actually in the well committee. I was just familiar with the people who ran it, which was Jacqueline Lichtenberg started it. And then there were several other people who helped run it, ending up with Shirley Mayevsky. Um, since there was no internet, all of our communication was by letters, you know, really physical paper letters, and by telephone. And because if you lived in nowhere, Missouri, you very often had a lot of trouble finding any other people who liked Star Trek. The Well Committee was a conduit for you to locate other people who liked the show so that you would have somebody to talk to. Now, of course, that's not really a problem because you can just go online. But at the time, many people felt tremendously isolated. Uh, Well Committee was one of the organizations. There was another one called STAR. And so sometimes there were chapters around the country. And in Philadelphia, we had sort of like a branch of Well Committee that was also part of another organization. And we were sort of getting together semi-regularly and then became the fan base for the first Star Trek convention in Philadelphia. Now, what happened in New York, there was a local science fiction convention called Lunacon, which I was a member of. I went to it and I enjoyed it. And there were very nice people, but there was a sort of a feeling that Star Trek fans were, well, a little pushy and all they wanted to talk about was Star Trek. And of course, Lunacon covered a great many other science fiction and fantasy aspects. And one day, Elise Pines, Rosenstein, and I were sorting film clips, which were discarded pieces of actual film from the episodes, which we got from B. Joe Trimble and Mr. Roddenberry. And we were trying to make a film show, which you used a slide projector for. I know this is all ancient history and people have probably never seen a piece of actual film, but that's how we did it. And we said to each other, wouldn't it be lovely if we could have a convention that was all about Star Trek and we could just talk about it to our heart's content and all our friends could come? And Elise said, that's a great idea. And I said, well, yeah, okay. And then three or four days later, Elise called me and said, I've got a printer. We've got a hotel. And somehow it just quite got away from us after that. Um, the first convention we had, we modeled the convention after Lunacon. 
which is the convention that we knew. So we had an art show and a costume ball and panels and a dealer's room. And we told all our friends and they told their friends and it was all word of mouth and letters. And we had about 800 advance registrations. At Lunacon used to basically double its advance registration. So we thought, wow, maybe we'll have 1,600 attendees, which is an enormous number. So we planned for 2,000. And we ended up with about 3,400. 3, oh, my it gosh. Was, it was overwhelming. Uh, we ended up pinning pieces of paper onto people's chests because we <laughs> ran out of badges. We ran out of everything, including room. The space, I was we, had, the space we had was rated for 1,800 people. Uh, fortunately, the fire marshals never found out, but it was a near thing. So, but it was wonderful. Wow. Yeah, one of the things we had the opportunity to speak with uh, B. Joe Trimble about a year ago, and that was one of my major questions to her is when you don't have the internet, which of course we're so used to now, is how you organize and, and handle all of those logistics and get the word out. So I think hearing what you, the, the like, I guess, analog way of communicating all of this stuff, I think is fascinating. One of the, in the, at the later conventions, we occasionally would have a 30 second paid ad at the end of a rerun. Mm. And of course, there were the articles in the TV guide so mm -hmm. that we got people calling us up and saying, I hear there's a Star Trek convention. Oh, sorry, it was last week. So, but it was, it was primarily word of mouth and and letter contact. There was a tremendous correspondence going on because everybody wanted to talk about it. And um, originally it was all volunteer. And I cannot describe to you the amount of work that we did to do that. Later we hired people from the Convention Bureau to handle registration, but basically the committee did all the other work, including stuffing the giveaway bags. Oh, you I'm sorry, I just... Until you have slid across the floor on a sea of plastic bags. <laughs> yeah, I just finished reading Joan Winston's book, The Making of the Track Conventions, and uh, it was really interesting. I mean, a lot of things are similar, but a lot has changed. And certainly, I mean, it's not surprising. It's a monumental effort. And she talks about how, you know, after the first convention, people wanted to just start buying their memberships for the next one already. Um, and I was interested in um, the uh, what? Okay, she talks a lot about the dead dog party. Could you tell us what that was? Because I don't think that's something that happens so much at conventions anymore. It's basically the, the committee and helpers and anybody who hasn't gone home when the convention officially ends. Uh, suppose you live in California and you decided to fly in for the convention. Well, maybe you're not going home that evening. 
So there you are hanging around, you don't really have anything to do. You go to the dead dog party and there are people that you can talk to and mm -hmm. there might be some snacks. And at, in the early days, there was beer. Later on, we started worrying about the age of, of the people who were there and it was all sodas. But basically, it was just kind of like, oh my God, it's over. <laughs> at, the larger, at the larger conventions, it really is more staff and the volunteers um, because it really is a facility for that. But the smaller fan-run conventions and basically fan-run conventions in general, the Dead Dog Party would be open to everyone. Um, and it's almost expected at this point. I can tell you that it definitely still happens at Dragon Con. Yeah, it still happens. Dead dogs haven't died until they die. <laughs> sometimes they go. Sometimes they have gone on for days because people yeah. just don't leave. But the, the committee is so tired that mm -hmm. all they want to do is lie around and. <laughs> yeah, so, when I was at the, at the first Philly convention, uh, which was five days, it was a five-day convention. I was going the whole five days, and at the dead dog party, actually at that convention, we probably had about eight dead dog parties going on. People were throwing their own. It was so so cool, so awesome that they were literally carrying me from dead dog party to dead dog party to dead dog party. <laughs> I was, I was, I was passing out at each one. I was, I was like 21 then. So <laughs> it was, I, I certainly had a lot of stamina. Um, but after five days of sleeping, maybe two hours a night, I was pretty dead. I was the true dead dog. And there were all kinds of strange things happening because there, there were people who were just, wild to see the stars to talk to each other and um many many bizarre things happened that that we can't even remember we just n knew at the time we said what um people showing up there was there was this one lady i believe it was an artist named carol swoboda she made a full-sized model of spock a dummy and she brought it to the convention in a bus, a Greyhound bus, and the head fell off and rolled down the aisle while the bus was driving. Um, and we, we put him, uh, the dummy, he, he was entered in the art show, and we put him into a chair next to the door. And people would come up to the dummy and say, sir, where is your name tag? You can't sit there. Yep. Really, they did. <laughs> they did. I was in the. I was running the art show, and I watched them doing. <laughs> but you can't imagine how much work it was. There were some very. One of our friends had access to a mainframe computer, so we went up in the off hours and used it to make a mailing list. Um, guess who typed the names and addresses in every Thursday night? Oh, wow. Guess who picked the mail up from the post office box <laughs> and drove it up to the uh, place where this guy's mainframe was located? <laughs> and then, of course, we would have committee meetings that lasted for hours and we screamed at each other. <laughs> None of us had any experience except for helping to run a small Lunacon. And it was, it was so big. And there were no backers. 
mm-hmm. I put down the deposit for the original hotel because I had some cash. But everything had to be done on the cheap because we had no money. And although we didn't at the first convention pay the guests anything, um, we still had to pay for the hotel, mm-hmm. printing, and postage and renting a post office box and yes I don't know how how Lynn's people managed it but it was all done very much on a shoestring well I think we're almost at one of your questions uh, you were thinking about asking which is about how the split between fan run and more corporate commercial conventions happened because that's about when it happened which was the Philly convention was actually semi-commercial um, in the sense that even though it was supported by fans and all the basic groundwork was done by fans, it was actually owned by Al Schuster, who was one of the original people from the first Star Trek convention with Deborah, and that was part of the big split off. So... Um, in the early, early days, the first corporate conventions were still supported by fans, and we would get small stipends and all our expenses covered, but it was still, someone was making money, but it was paid, but the, the actual work work was done by fans. So that's how it began. So how were, um, did they make their money differently from the fan-run conventions? Um, I think that there was a a lady, I believe her name was Lisa Boynton. She was a (laughs) Chicago person. And I think that these corporate people looked at the newspaper recordings and and the the articles and TV guide and said, oh, goodness, look, there must be money in this. And then they decided to run their own conventions. But we had no idea that there was money in it. We just knew that with science fiction conventions, you ran the convention and you paid the guest expenses and nobody expected to make any money. So we really, I remember we asked for something like $21 for the last convention. It was five days. And I mean, you could barely get your foot in the door these days for $21. And the guests didn't ask for money to do autographs, and they didn't ask for money to have a photo taken with them. I think that they didn't realize at the time that they could. And, of course, it was, I mean, it's their livelihood. They Mm -hmm. came because, after a while, they came because we paid them. And it really, you can't really complain about their asking for money because, after all, their, their bodies are what they're using to earn, just like a football player. They can't afford to give away a weekend to somebody else. Mm-hmm. But I think also the commercial conventions cut down on things. Beside having a dealer's room, we had an art show. That mm-hmm. meant we had to have a hangings which we purchased the materials and we put them together and then we stored them in Al Schuster's shop and then we transported them to the hotel and put them up 
And we charged a very small amount for the artists to do their displays. And it was a lot of work. But the the commercial convention said, oh, well, we don't need to do that. And they saved money on that. But they were still asking for the admission fee. And we did a lot of stuff. We had a musical that was performed by uh, a school, Gilbert and Sullivan group out of New Jersey. And we paid for their transportation and their uniforms and for their hotel room. And it was a special thing. And we gave away. Yeah, it sounded too like there was just a lot of effort by the helpers and the organizers to really pull together to help people who needed help in terms of like disability issues to make the conventions accessible. And also, you know, uh, you know, really taking seriously um, when like a convention goer lost her wallet and things like that to that it was maybe felt kind of like it's our responsibility to all help each other because we're all part of this family. Right. Fans helping fans is definitely a big family. Absolutely. Well, it feels like the biggest difference even now between some of the corporate conventions and the fan run conventions is the focus, right? Because the corporate conventions, their focus is on making as much money as they can that weekend. Whereas the fan run conventions are about, you know, celebrating not only the property, but the community that's there and the fan and the art and the the stories and the creativity that comes out of it. Exactly. And the early fan run conventions, uh, early business ones came out of, still came out of fandom where you would have Lisa Boynton who relied on Chicago fandom. You had Al Schuster who was part of Lunarians and the original Star Trek convention. Um, and then you had the creation people, um, Adam and Gary, and they saw doing conventions all over and turned into business. But their first convention was almost a fan-run convention, too. They started out of fandom. That's, and they because, a- that's because they were our helpers originally. Yeah, exactly. And they saw the uh, opportunity, like, oh, maybe we can make some money at it. And they actually created the model of, What's the least we could do to make the most amount of money? <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. So, um, so I started, you know, basically a dealer's room and the main stage. Mm-hmm. And as long as you had a place for someone to, to sell stuff and then some form of entertainment, a show, that's all they had to do for their ticket. <laughs> I started attending conventions in, I'd say, the early to mid-90s. And it felt to me like creation was the only game in town. At least they wanted you to feel that. Of course. But um, I mean, especially at that time, I didn't really even, I wasn't even aware about fan conventions. So I'm just wondering, like, how did it get to that point? Did it feel like fan conventions were being pushed out or did they just like throw marketing dollars behind the creation events? Yes. That's very hard to say. One of one of the problems with fan-run conventions is that it's all volunteer, mm-hmm. and people get older, and people change their interests. Originally, it was all Star Trek, and then in 1977, there was Star Wars, and a lot of people just said, oh my God, Star Wars, and they changed their focus. They weren't interested in coming to Trek conventions anymore. 
and around that time, the actors started to say, hey, this is my livelihood. You've got to pay me. Not just my hotel room, not just my airfare, not just my bar bill, um, not just a per diem so I can go out and have dinner. You have to pay me real money. And um, the fan-run conventions couldn't do that. They didn't have the the um, money. And also, there's um, a nasty kind of um, catch-22. If you know that you're going to have 6,000 people because you have signed up 6,000 people, you have got to have a facility that is big enough, and that's not cheap. But if you have to pay for the hotel and the guests, then you have to get those 6,000 people or you're in a big hole, even if you're a corporation. We were incorporated the last two, two or three years because we could not afford to put our cars and our bank accounts in there out up front in case something happened and there was no money. But you have to have the large facility because you have to have the room for the people, then you have to have the expensive guests so that you can bring in the people. Anyway, I keep feeling like I'm going in circles. It's the cold. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. So, Lynn, you're still affiliated with the Lunarians and Lunacon, right? Kind of, yes. Kind I'm of. still involved in fan. I'm still involved in fandom. I uh, uh, help with PhilCon and Lunacon and WorldCon and whatever conventions I can get to. I've been help. I helped at Aresia this year, and I'll be helping them next year. Um, Aresia is a pretty large fan-run convention in the Boston. In Boston, so I, I stay involved. I'm I lived in Boston Canada. for four years and nobody ever told me about Aresia and I'm still bitter about it. But <laughs> I'm just well, I think how is it different, you know, from running a, a fan convention in the 70s when, when it was all starting out versus running a fan convention now? Well, first there was email <laughs> and uh, everything was when I was working on the Philadelphia Worldcon in 2001, I, I could swear that I was spending five hours a day reading emails from people who had problems, my co-committee members. I was in, I was deputy division head of programming and in charge of concerts. And uh, one of the main people who started the Philadelphia Worldcon. And in 2001, everyone was on email by then. And so that was the major change is that we were able to do a lot of communication and tracking by email. And then there were wikis where you keep track of stuff online. And um, now you can do, just like we're doing now, we can do meetings uh, without having to actually see anybody or be there physically. Although really physical in-person meetings are always really the best still. Because you get now to have you have relations and, and stuff like that. So that's the, that's the major change. What, what that means is that if, if I'm uh, helping out a convention in Boston, I can still participate in a meeting. If I want to help out with the Worldcon that just happened in Finland, I can still be part of that. So that's, that's a major change. So we're able to draw upon resources all around the country, all around the world, and our fandom is even more connected than ever. But you also have the opportunity for all of your computers to crash and to be unable to check people in at the door because their registration has gone snafu. 
which I think happened at an Aresia that I was at recently. And Aresia is really very good about that, but their computers were just overwhelmed. So we ended up not not being able to check in for quite a while. Um, Always have an analog backup copy. That happened yeah. at a somewhat recent Dragon Con as well. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. A hard copy is such a great idea. But so, I think there's... There's also a bit more um, commercial aspects of it. You do have to have um, hired security guards mm-hmm. and you don't do your own mailing. We used to do our own mailing, which means we would print out 6,000 or 8,000 labels and then people would get together. We'd get, Al would do the printing and we would get together with boxes and boxes and boxes of printed advance progress reports, which we sent out to the people who'd been there last year so they would pay for the next year. Mm-hmm. Also, people would write us and say, tell me about your convention, and we'd send them one of these. But for the main mailing, there'd be eight or 10,000 copies of these little collated booklets, and we would sit there with strips of mailing labels and stick them on and then we would have to sort them they were more or less sorted by zip code but you had to divide them up into bundles for the post office by same first same zip same first three letters same city and then you had to rubber band them in a certain way and put them into the mailing sacks and deliver them to the post office (laughs) and this was all done by us in (laughs) Rosenstein's living room or my living room and there'd be eight or ten fans sitting around doing this on a Sunday afternoon and all the pay they'd get would be a meal and now of course it's all done by a commercial you pay somebody to do to send out the postcards or you use a mail program like MailChimp (laughs) I feel like I'm missing out because I've never done that. Mailing <laughs> parties were lots of fun. I was, was going to ask, um, why do you think uh, that so many of the original convention organizers were women? And whether was that any different from the convention scene in general? Or were all conventions like that? What was that like? Originally, all the science fiction conventions were pretty much male because almost all the fans were male. They were what we would now call geeks, but it wasn't fashionable. And many of them were so um, unsocialized that (laughs) they couldn't really communicate with other people unless they were drunk. Excuse me, that's a rude thing to say. but anyway, the, the conventions were very, very heavily male. And then when Star Trek came in, a vast number of women became involved. And they sort of overwhelmed the original group. Um, that's what my feeling is of why the conventions were mostly run by women, because it was driven by the Star Trek desire. I mean... Our convention, at one point, there were 14 on the committee, and I think four of them were men. 
So, uh, Lynn, how do you feel about this? Um, I concur. <laughs> but when I, by the time I got into fandom, I was already seeing the change that women were more involved because my first convention was in 1972. So it was right after your first convention. Um, that was a PhilCon, and then I came up to New York for LunaCon in 73 and the Star Trek convention in 73. So, um, yeah. I think that's fascinating so, because even now the stereotype of the Star Trek fan is like the lonely guy in his parents' basement. Well, and they're wrong. Not accurate they, at all. They never paid any attention. Yes, some people wear a lot of buttons and some people wear ears. And some people are a little um, different. But the networks never, we wrote them thousands of letters. They saw our names. They saw us at the conventions. And they refused to recognize the fact that there were so many women. I mean, they had all of these hunks on that show. And they only had <laughs> two or three women. They were lovely women, wonderful women. but the the main focus of the show was always these men. And, and just let me chime in that uh, the first Worldcon chair that was a woman was Julian May. In nine, I'm looking it up now to get the exact date. 1952, she chaired a Worldcon, and she was the first woman to chair a Worldcon, and she just passed away. And the, there were some wonderful women in early... Um, science fiction fandom, but there were a very small number of them. And uh, what, 2%? A very small number. Wow. So the fact, I'm not sure about the percentages, but it was a very small number. And but definitely fact, Star Trek made a, a factor in the change of that. Yeah, it feels like every aspect of the fan communities that we look into all of it's being driven by women and a lot of the same women. I mean, Deborah, not only conventions, but I mean, fan fiction and fanzines, it's huge. Well, I would never have done a fanzine if my friend Sherna Comerford had not gone to an open ESPA, which was a, a Newark science fiction convention where she met Brian Burley. And she talked to him about Star Trek. And he put a, her and then me in touch with Juanita Coulson, who was a Midwest fan who had been publishing a fanzine, not a fiction fanzine, but one with reviews of books and convention discussions and letters. And she and her husband, Buck Coulson, had been publishing Yandro for years and years and years. And Juanita and Sherna and I had this very involved correspondence about Star Trek. At that time, we were talking about, look, that color shirt means he's an ex. Uh, really, I mean, it was very basic. And Juanita said, why don't you two do a Star Trek fanzine? I have my hands full doing my own fanzine, but I'll help you. I'll, I'll help you with the production. And if she hadn't done that and, and given us advice, we would never, ever have done it because we didn't know anything at the time. And of course, we were, it was all, 
it was all volunteer labor. We're going back to the doing it by hand. Now, I don't know whether your school ever used uh, a ditto. Ditto is the purple print on the slimy paper and it smells funny. And they used to send home messages to parents because you can get 50 or 100 copies off of a ditto before mm-hmm. the, the ink runs out. But what we used was a mimeograph, which is the next step up in which you can get uh, two or 3,000 printings from uh, one stencil. And we would type the stencils on our typewriters and then we would stick them onto the machine and run them. Oh my God, it's electric. You don't have to hand crank it. <laughs> so, and then we would collate it. And that was another thing. People would come and sit around and put page one on page three, on page five, and then you'd staple it. And so before the internet, fanzine fandom was really strong. That was one of the best ways of communicating with other fans. They would create their fanzines. Um, sometimes either self-made or often they would uh, solicit contributions from other people and collate it and put it together and mail it out to people or hand it out at conventions. And that's how they would share opinions and thoughts. And now it's all on Facebook. I mean, there's still fanzines. Fanzine hasn't totally died, but now most of them are internet fanzines and sent by email. But it's like our archive of our own and, and stuff like that. But we, we got the stories and we edited them. We said, no, you have to make sure that he's got the same color eyes at the end of the story as he did at the beginning <laughs> of the story. There's, there's um, a story that uh, someone wrote. I think it was Paula Smith. And it's um, a satire, a gothic takeoff on a fan on a fan story in which the heroine's name changes every three or four paragraphs. (laughs) And it's uh, full of excessive purple verbiage and her eye color changes. She's Tippy Marie Smith and she is the youngest ensign ever on the Enterprise and she's so gorgeous and she has (laughs) silver gilt hair down to her backside and all the crew adores her and she has the same name as the author. That's a dead giveaway. <laughs> well, people do write these stories, and, and everybody has a little bit of this Mary Sue in them. It, it's not natural. You want to, to put yourself with your, love, your characters you love, mm-hmm. and so you write the story. But... As you get to be a better writer, you can make the character less perfect. And we helped them. We, we guided them. We are so smart. We're so old and, and well-read. We can say to you, no, that's the wrong word. You don't mean to say that. Like the man who said the girl was holding a small monolith in her hand. Well, <laughs> Well, yeah, monolith does mean a single stone, but usually it means more like um, Stonehenge. (laughs) I mean, that's that's the kind of, I guess, tutelage, mentorship that doesn't happen today. You know, now somebody puts something up on AO3 or even when when we moved to Alt-Star Trek Creative and, you know, there weren't nice suggestions of how to improve your story. It's 
flame wars and mean comments and insults that fly. So I'm afraid sometimes that. I was a little rude when <laughs> I told people they needed to fix things, but no, not flaming. Right. We thought we did. We thought we did a pretty good job helping people, and we published some really great stories. Um, Deborah, I read on I, in a wiki, I think, that uh, you have a rule called Langsam's Law when you were editing fiction. Could you tell us what that is? You know, I don't even remember what it was. <laughs> okay. Well, what I read is that it is don't. It's called Don't Make Him Say That. Oh. Oh. Okay. Well, th- the the very first convention we had a panel, which we called Don't Make Him Say That, and it it was intended to be a guide but also it was just funny because <laughs> there were there were things that people put into the stories that were obviously so wrong they were badly handled or they were not well there there was this one person who obviously just didn't like spock so every time he described spock he called him hulking green, logical, or Vulcan. <laughs> um, sometimes all at once in the same sentence. That, that was not really well written. And, and then there were what my cousin Debbie, you understand, I have a cousin whose name is almost identical to mine, and she looks like me, and we were Star Trek fans together. So people say, no, no, that's one person. Well, no, it, she's Deborah Langsam. <laughs> and she's a separate person. But she had this thing that she called neon words. It's where you use the word once on page three. And then 300 pages later, you use this same word. And people say, oh, my God, why is she always using that word? It's it's just um, poor writing. So we, we <laughs> sort of were trying to guide people into realizing that if this is what the character is, he's not going to sound that way. And if he's on top of a cliff, you shouldn't suddenly have him pounding on the door of a building at the bottom without saying, after we slid down the cliff and and stuff like that. Did you have a writing background or did you just kind of learn it by doing it? Mm, I was, I was a children's librarian for 37 years, so I had a lot of literature in the background, but also, I will say this very modestly, have a good feeling for what is grammatical and, and well-written. And I read a great deal. I'm an enormous reader. Yes, I'm also very tall. But um, <laughs> having having read a lot of stuff, I could say oh, there's a better way of phrasing this or why use the passive voice when you could say this in an active way and it would be better, it would also be short. People, people like short sentences sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um. Can, maybe I can go back to conventions for a second, and I'm wondering what it was like. I know Sue and I have, in the last couple of years, got to do some panels with some of like our Star Trek star idols, and was you got a bit starstruck. Like, what was it like inviting these people from the show to the conventions and having them come out and basically getting to hang out with them and at those early conventions? 
um, I didn't really hang out with people that much because I was in the art show yeah. <laughs> all the time. Yeah. Um, I didn't hang out either. Although we get to, sometimes we had dinner. Mm -hmm. you know, we would have a dinner or something get together with, with like George or Jimmy or um, Jimmy and his wife, Wendy. Um, but generally we were working. Yeah. We had to do our, our jobs. We had responsibilities and, and uh, I was actually uh, helping out at one of Lisa Boyd's, actually her first Chicago convention, because she brought me and Stu uh, Hellander out there to like help because she had never run a convention before. And um, I was sitting up in the, 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 I don't know what it was called, Command Central, and um, Shatner was there, and Emoy was there, and I, I didn't even talk to them. <laughs> I was so busy. I had so much to do. I was actually like, in, they made me in charge of the art show in the dealer's room because no one there knew what it was. And I had to help them set it up. And I was so busy. I was like, hi, guys. I was busy to talk by. <laughs> so that's, 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 that's how it was like. <laughs> that's the way it works. Um, my friend Joyce and I did, uh, Joyce Yasner, uh, and I did a small convention. Um, we called it Mostly Eastly Con or more Eastly Con because it was taking the place of Media West Con, which was, which still is the big media fan fanzine convention, which is run out, out in the Midwest and it's generally Memorial Day weekend, but they weren't doing it that year for some reason. So they allowed us how we could use their weekend. And Joyce said to me, but I want to go to a panel. I said, you don't go to panels. You're running this thing. You're working. Mm -hmm. You get up at the crack of dawn, and if you're lucky, you're in bed at a normal hour and just pray. There have been some disasters at conventions. There was, um, I believe it was Disclave, but I'm not going to swear to it. Disclave. There was a flood. Um, this, this guy managed to break the sprinkler in his bedroom, which was right above either the art show or the dealer's room. And in the middle of the night, there was a flood and they had to get the convention committee in to do something about it. And well, you just pray that nothing like that happens. But if it does, you're there, you're the person on the spot. I was at that convention, and my two-year-old daughter was at that convention. I mean, she remembers that night because they got everybody out of the, of the rooms, and it was horrible and scary, and it was like 3 to 5 in the morning, and she remembers that. It's probably her first memory. In fact, if you hear me uh, say, excuse me, I have to go, it's because she's coming back in the house, and she will be making noise. So just warning you, it could happen any time now. No worries. <laughs> Well, I keep bringing up DragonCon because that's where most of my support slash volunteer slash organizing experience lays. But I, I know several of the track directors and they say the same thing. They're like, I don't get to go to panels. Maybe if I'm moderating one and I'm, I, or I might see somebody backstage for two or three minutes, but I'm working. Well, that's the fact. You're, you're running this. You're the one responsible. Um, I was a chairman of one of the Star Trek conventions and I ended up hiding in the convention bedroom because it was overcrowded and people kept coming in and wanting to get refunds and I shouldn't have done that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's it's your job. 
so yeah, we had dinner with the with the actors, and that was just lovely. But I, the volunteers who were helping to get them to their program items saw them more than we did. Mm-hmm. Had either of you been to the set when it was filming? No, no. Uh, I was supposed to go to the set. The Sherna Comerford and I went out to California. Um, I think it was Bacon that we went to, but we and we had been invited to come out to the set, but we thought we would go after the convention instead of before the convention, and it turned out they were on hiatus. Mm. So mm. we got to see the prop room, and they took us around and showed us some stuff, but we didn't actually see them filming. So after the convention, the Well Committee conventions in New York, I think the last one was 75. Um, they were not Well Committee conventions. Oh, okay. The Well oh. Committee was a separate organization. Okay, there was just overlap. Yes, well, we, we were all doing all this stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. I was doing fanzines, and I was running conventions, and I was going to other conventions. And, and we were trying to bring Star Trek back. And trying to bring it back with other fans. <laughs> Thousands of letters, thousands of petitions. But, I was, uh, yeah, I was, I was interested in the stuff that the Well Committee and Stars and the other sort of fan groups were doing in the period, I guess, between like seventy-five and I think ninety-five is when we there's, I think, was just like a bit less of that sort of central fan organizing in Star Trek. Um, the Well Committee did a lot of stuff. They put out, I think they put out a newsletter at one point, but mostly it, it was helping people communicate with other fans and giving them guidance about running conventions. And um, sometimes they would answer questions. Jacqueline Lichtenberg actually set it up. Her name was in the book, and people wrote her letters asking her, how do I get in touch with other fans? How do I find out about conventions? And she would write back. But eventually it got to be too much for her. And then she organized the Well Committee, which was a group of people. And of course, one of the things we did was we wrote letters to Paramount saying, mm. we, we want Star Trek, bring it back. Mm. We wrote a lot of letters. And they used to send us back at the very beginning. They would send us back what we called, thank you very much and please drop dead letters. Yes. <laughs> We have a slightly more graphic term for it now. <laughs> well, but that's what it was. Yep. <laughs> and we wrote hundreds of them, and we sent them petitions. And um, I don't know if they really listened to us or not. Probably not. So it was there mostly for, for central organization? It was a matter of communication. Mm-hmm. It was It was getting in touch with friends. And then... I guess that is sort of what happened when everything moved online with things like the BBS and news groups. I will tell you a terrible secret. I'm not in contact with any of these people online. Oh, that's totally fair. <laughs> it's got its pros and its cons for yeah. sure, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's interesting. I on Facebook. Mm-hmm. You understand what happened with our Star Trek convention was that it was too much work to be mm-hmm. a hobby. Because mm-hmm. It was every Thursday and every weekend all year. And then we took a week off and then we started planning the next one. And this mm-hmm. was not a job that we were being paid for. There wasn't enough money in it 
for us to pay 15 people to work. And it was, it was too much money, too much work for a hobby and too little money for a job. And after five years, we just said, I can't do this anymore. Plus, we there started to be a proliferation of people doing it for business purposes. Mm-hmm. And then once that started, then there started to be some um, nasty stuff about people trying to undercut people and competition. And it, and it wasn't friendly competition because there were a lot of people really just out for themselves thinking they could make a fast buck. And, and It was and- horrible. And the actors who very reasonably felt that this was their livelihood started to ask for a great deal more money than we had mm-hmm. available. And Paramount started getting a little uncomfortable about it. They thought we were making, I think we made about five cents an hour <laughs> over the five years. Right. So um, how um, how did it feel when you got more Star Trek. <laughs> like when you got the movies and uh, Next Generation, was it surprising? I guess I'm asking, like, did, at the time you wanted it to come back, did you think that you would be here 50 years later talking about it? Never. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say that I never liked any of the sequels except maybe Deep Space Nine. And then when they killed off Vedic Burial, I said, these people cannot cope with adult human relationships. <laughs> and the hell with them. <laughs> yeah, Deep but, Space Nine was really cool because it actually was telling stories and it contained space that they had a lot more thinking involved. So yeah, for, for serious Trekkers or Trekkies, that made many people find that the, their favorite. So I'm wondering for if you're, you know, since you're still involved in the fandoms today, how you think the convention culture has changed among the attendees? Do you think there's still that same sense of community or do you think that it is, you know, just a, a, basically a big marketing convention? I don't really I have know. a lot of opinions. <laughs> Please. <laughs> I don't really know these people, so I can't say, mm-hmm. but it, it's hard to reconcile the people who will pay $80 to have a, an autograph with um, the people who used to love it so much that they would go out and make their own phasers mm-hmm. because Paramount couldn't comprehend that there were adults who wanted phasers and when they did do the phasers they put star trek on the side of it we didn't want a phaser that said star trek we wanted a real phaser it worked it blew up things (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) oh yeah but the conventions uh fandom now um some of the major changes is there's just two sides of it one is the commercial side where people go and expect the show and they expect mm-hmm. that they're paying their money. They want to get entertained. And that's totally different from people who are going to a fan-run convention who generally get memberships and are part of a community. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. And then the other side of it is that culture has changed and that people's standards of interaction, one, because there's so many crowds uh, that they have to have more rules and structure, and two, because people are more sensitive and more aware to 
things like cosplay is in permission on things like that. So, and, and, and you mentioned also about um, access, that access is not only legally required, but you know, there's so many people that need help. So those are some of the things that convention culture has changed, some for the better, definitely for the better, and then some for the worse, especially for people who don't know that there are fan-run conventions that are only yes. there uh, stuck in that world where it's just about money. Finding fan-run conventions changed my feeling about conventions, (laughs) but in my own experience, I feel like among the people I know, among the people that I do events with, because I'm a part of a a few different fan groups that go to these corporate conventions to do events, there's almost a pushback. You know, people are, are finally, it seems, starting to realize that they're being herded like cattle and paying admission in order to be allowed to either shop or be marketed at. So I feel like I'm seeing a lot of people heading out and searching for fan conventions, something that might be smaller, something that might be a little bit more focused. Um, I don't know if anybody has seen that, but I'm wondering, do you think there's going to be a resurgence, at least even a little one, in the fan-run convention? It's hard to say because it's fan fan run conventions involve a tremendous amount of work, and it is difficult to find people who are willing to spend the entire convention working, not actually going to panels or seeing things because they are running registration and the running the art show, and they cannot leave their job. And people don't necessarily want to do that. If they want to go to a convention, they want to enjoy it. And also, there's a matter of experience. If you have not been running and working at a convention, you don't necessarily know how to do some things. And it's hard to get people to come and learn. And then again, you have to rent the space and you have to have the money for all. It's the same monetary problems that we had in the beginning. You have to have the post office box or the website. You have to have the bank account. You have to have the credit card machine. Everybody expects to be able to pay online with a credit card. So you have to. Did you realize that you had to pay to use a credit card when you're a business? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, it's hard to see whether there will be more fan-run conventions. I know a couple of fan-run conventions have recently closed down mm-hmm. because of these problems. Yeah, and then again, the one I keep bringing up, Dragon Con, seems to grow every year. And there is some fear among a lot of the attendees who do go that, they're going to, quote, start selling out. But, well, they're actually quasi-business. Quasi yeah, there is, there is San Diego, an LLC. San Diego Comic-Con yeah. is fan-run, nonprofit, but they make money. Uh, New York Comic-Con is fully business. Yes. Mm-hmm. So you can, you'll see the differences just if you go to any of those conventions where the fan-run ones still care about people's enjoyment. Mm-hmm. 
and and you know more than just legal safety, their general well-being. Yes. Right, and that that's and not and not that people who are running the business ones don't care about safety and well-being, but that's not their prime directive. They just don't want to get sued or have to refund. In my experience, also there just there tends to be a bit more diversity of programming at the fan run conventions. Maybe it's partly necessity because it's harder to get as many of the actors out when you maybe can't afford to pay them as much or you're a smaller convention, but there's more fan panels, more like maybe having like scientific experts who are, were inspired by Star Trek, um, just different, more different things to see, I guess. Um, most fan run conventions, which are not media conventions, mm-hmm. which is to say they're not Star Trek or Star Wars, don't have paid guests. Mm-hmm. Maybe the major guest, the big, big name, like at, at PhilCon, they had C.J. Cherry, who was a lady mm-hmm. who has, what, 35 books? Mm-hmm. <coughs> big fan following. And I'm sure that she did not pay for her own hotel room. Mm-hmm. When we right, so like they they'll get their expenses and hotel covered, but uh, occasionally a small honorarium, and I mean really small, mm-hmm. like a couple hundred dollars kind of thing. But generally, fan run conventions do not pay the guests unless it's a media convention. In that case, they work out something. Sometimes they won't pay, but they can sell their autographs at the fan run. Science fiction conventions, there's no sales of autographs. I know there are several. Um, I do want to say one thing okay. before we run out of time because I don't have much going. Um, if, you're, if you or your audience is interested in convention running, I know of a couple different groups that help. Um, and you can probably find them on Facebook. Uh, one is Journeyman of Fandom, J-O-F. And the other is uh, SmothCon. Uh, uh, SmothCon does um, conventions around, yeah, I say around the world, but mostly the United States. Uh, the next one is in Boston in December. I don't know if there's going to be a JoffCon coming up or not. They're more sporadic. They happen when people have it. But there's a lot of conversation about topics of running conventions so there's still there's definitely a network out there and i know there's um, an organization out west but i can't think what they are right now okay well we can post the links to those in our show notes that's super helpful thanks sure and we don't want to keep you too long but i guess our final question would be how do you feel about the fact that we have a new star trek show 51 years after we had our first star trek show and are you watching it I watched the first episode, and I was really annoyed at what they did to the Klingons. Mm. Um, the original Klingons were sexy. Okay. <laughs> um, that's why people are fascinated by them, and that's why you've got people writing stories and learning to speak Klingon. And I didn't find the new Klingons um, that attractive. And I did not. See it. <laughs> okay. I have not seen it yet. It's not. I have. Uh, I do some streaming services, and I have not connected with a source that has it yet. Plus, most of my friends are like really annoyed that they have to pay to watch it. Yeah. After yeah. the first episode, so I think that was an interesting marketing thing that may not be successful, but we'll see. Um, I think it was 
kind of I am not the cleverest move in the world. Maybe they <laughs> thought, oh, there are so many Star Trek fans, we will make a lot of money selling this to them. But I I think that many people have their backs put up because of, of being asked to pay for it. Hmm. Yeah, but, it was uh, definitely for those of us in the U.S. and Canada that had to get a separate service from Netflix. It was a little annoying. <laughs> yeah. Jealous yeah. of the rest of the world. <laughs> yeah, so, I guess. On, on the subject of convention, I'll do a plug. You know, definitely check out uh, the World Science Fiction Convention. It goes around the world. It was just last in Finland. I think the next one is in San Jose. I San think. Jose sounds right. Either San Diego or San Jose. I San think Jose. there's a couple of cons, and they're great fun. They're a lot of fun. It's a, and it's a good size. You know, you get somewhere between four and eight thousand people generally. Um, so they're like four. <laughs> More like, uh, um, and then the, my favorite convention actually is the World Fantasy Convention. Uh, that also goes around the world, and that one I actually do go to towns. I don't know how that happens, so I even do volunteer at most of them. But there's enough time to hit some panels and relax and have a good time. And if you're into talking to authors, it's great. Uh, if you're an artist, um, Eluxcon, which just happened is a pretty major uh, art convention, and that's in Reading, Pennsylvania, of all places. Um, uh, um, the thing with FantasyCon is that they have a strict limitation on the size. They know what they want, and they mm -hmm. don't want more than, what, 1,500 people. That's it. When they reach their maximum, you could stand on your head. You can get on the waiting list in case somebody decides they can't come, but that takes care of the problem of having to constantly worry about paying for your site because you know how many bodies you can fit into that mm -hmm. site and that's how many people can get a ticket. And there's still a, a fanzine fandom. They have a convention called Core Flu. Um, that's pretty small and it's pretty long time fans, but that also goes uh, around the country or maybe around the world too. So, I mean, fan, fandom's still out there. You can find find it. It's you know your and your your town probably has a convention or two or three. <laughs> Don't you mortgage your house to run your own convention, though. That's no. a real <laughs> bad idea. Don't quit your day job. <laughs> nope. I will say that uh, my experiences at conventions is really my base for. Uh, what I know now, or, you know, everything I learned in kindergarten, everything I learned is at, at conventions. I learned how to do publicity. I learned how to work with people. Um, I learned about organizing things and putting it together. I mean, I went to college, but almost everything I learned was uh, through conventions, really. Mm -hmm. Got hands on experience. Helping, helping to, to negotiate contracts. I mean, you don't realize you have to have a contract with that hotel. Yeah, you you better have a bank account with some money in it, or <laughs> the hotel won't talk to you. And the most important thing is that my friends—they're all from conventions. All my friends are fans. I met them at the early conventions, and I'm still friends with them. Yeah, right. That's true. Yeah, going back to that community. Exactly. Sure. It's your community. It's your base. It's your family. It's it was a family. There's there's um. 
in the musical chorus line, there's a song after one of the people who's trying out for a part in the chorus injures himself. And the other people sing about how they can't forget and won't regret what they did for love. That's basically what it is. We just loved it. That's perfect. Yeah. Just plucked all of my heartstrings. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because we're also big musical theater fans here. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you both so, so much for joining us. Uh, did any of, either of you have final thoughts, anything that you, else that you want to say? <laughs> I think we've just about talked about everything. Live long and prosper. <laughs> yes. Well, well thanks thank so, so much. much. Okay, you're Thank very you. welcome. This was really great. <laughs> yes. Have a great rest yeah. of your evening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. 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 If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter at Women at Warp, on Facebook at facebook.com slash women at warp, by email at crew at women at warp.com, and you can find our show notes and blog online at women at warp.com. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.